There is joy in soul winning. A few years ago, the Lord stirred in my heart to become a soul winner. But I, I had a problem. Problem was I sheltered myself within the church walls, within our Christian bubble. A lot of Christ followers would do that. We'll try to protect ourselves, but we'll shelter ourselves uh, in response. And then uh, the bigger problem was I realized in, in my week, in my day, I just wasn't around lost people enough. So what did I do? I went to Walmart. There's lots of people at Walmart, right? I went to Walmart and I was like, you know what? I'm going to go witness to people at Walmart. I, I'm gonna, I got so excited about doing that. Uh, then I realized, though, I became that awkward, weird Christian. Like, I became oversaved. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Like, let me give you an example. I, I was... I, I was in Walmart and I, was, I saw a guy in the bread section and I went up to him and was like, you buying bread? And he was like, uh, yeah, why? I was like, you know, Jesus is the bread of life. Uh, you, should, you should eat him. Like, it just, it was just bad. Like, I was so rusty because I got so accustomed of leading people to Jesus from the platform one-on-one. -on -one. I just wasn't good. I remember going to the fishing section I saw a guy, I was like, hey, are you a fisherman? He's like, yeah. I was like, you know, Jesus called fishermen to be fishers of men. What do you think about that? He's like, okay. Like, it just, it was so awkward, even to the point where I get to the cashier register, or cash register, cashier is like, hey, that'll be $15. Like, I'll pay that, but I want to let you know that Jesus paid the price of my sins, and he'll do it for you too. Like, and she was like, okay, leave. You know, just... It was just so, I, I, I became so awkward and just weird oversaved to the point where how I imagined witnessing the people just didn't go right. I, I, I almost felt defeated. I was like, oh, I thought, I thought they'd be like, oh, yeah, bread? Okay. You know, I just had an image of what that would look like. And so I felt defeated. And then I saw my next opportunity. There was a lady in the next aisle over me, in the next uh, uh, lane you know, cashing out whatever, buying her groceries. And I heard her say, hey, she didn't say I'm a little old lady, but she said in her mind, I'm a little old lady. I can't carry my dog food and put it on the conveyor belt. And so I was like, I'm big, I'm strong, I can help. So I was like, ma'am, <laughs> you know, I will help you. Dun, da, da, da. You know, just, I don't know. Um, there is joy in soul winning. And so I helped her with her stuff. And I was like, hey, do you need help taking their, your groceries, whatever, help out to your car? And she was like, yeah. And so I was like, okay, this is my moment. And so I start walking with her, with her cart. And, and I'm telling her just how Jesus impacted my life. I'm like, man, God just, just did a whole change in my life. This is who I used to be. And now I'm not. Uh, you should know Jesus. Like, I'm telling her about this. And, and I asked the question, hey, what is your faith story? And my hope was she was going to say, I don't know Jesus. And I was going to say, you should. And she was going to be like, well, tell me more. And I'm like, here's the gospel. Get saved. And the heavens were going to open up and boom, in the Walmart parking lot, she would have surrendered her life to Jesus. I would have found a cup of water and baptized. Like, I just, <laughs> this is what I pictured. I was like, this is, this is going to be it. But that opportunity never came. 
Matter of fact, it got even more awkward. I remember helping her with her groceries and put her, the dog food in, the, in her car, and she never like surrendered her life to Jesus. So I felt defeated again. I started to walk away, and something really weird happened. I was walking away, and, and I felt her touch me. Um, I felt her grab my butt, y'all. Like, just, <laughs> y'all think I'm joking. But I was like, did she just, what happened? So I thought maybe she did it on accident, bumped into me. I looked back at her and she's like. <laughs> In my mind, I was like, I don't think this is how witnessing for Jesus is supposed to go. <laughs> like, I, I, I was like, in my head, I was like, I'm going to write a book. When witnessing goes wrong, you know, chapter two, don't let her touch you. I don't know, just, I'm like, this is bad. So I start walking away, like, pretty quickly, because I'm thinking, what is my wife going to think, you know? I'm walking away, and I'm like, this was the worst. I felt defeated again, and then I was like, you know what, what did she, and I, I reached in my back pocket, and in there I pulled out $5. She literally tipped me for helping her out. And I, I laughed a little bit, and I, and I told God, thanks, God, not in a sarcasm way, but to me, it was God's way to say, hey, good job for trying. You know, just, <laughs> you tried, here's $5. I don't know. She didn't get saved, but here's $5. Go buy yourself some chips, boy. You know, I don't know. And I realized in that moment, I believe uh, God is looking for men and women who would just try. God is looking for men and women in this service, in this auditorium, in this church right now, who would just try. And so we, as we continue our series, uh, Soul Winning, uh, I've pondered upon a question that's going to be the basis of this whole message today. And the question is this, I want you to think through it. What if you could put a smile on God's face? Would you do it? Like, I'm not imagining that God is just up in heaven angry, like, looking at us like, oh, you got to put a smile on my face, and we have to be like, la 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 you know, smile, God. I don't think that. But what if we could be the reason God rejoices? How awesome would that be? See, our greatest desire should be that we glorify God and put a smile on his face. That should be our greatest desire. But our culture tells us otherwise. Our culture tells you and I, no, 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 this, this life is all about you and what you can get out of it. And we get to a point where we think our lives on this earth is how I can make my life better, how I can succeed in life, how I, I mean, if you don't think this is you, here's a litmus test. When you pray next time, Think about the things are you, that you're saying. Are you saying, God, help me do this for me. Fill me up. I need help with this. Or is it a him mentality that our prayers are all praising him? See, nothing else should be in comparison to glorifying God. Nothing else. I know we're just saying that, but seriously, in your life, no title at your job, no title at your workforce should be in comparison than glorifying God. No amount of success that you have in life should substitute or replace us glorifying God. None of that, no, no amount of finances that we want to get should replace us, our desire to glorify God. Not even having great, well-behaved kids 
should replace wanting to glorify God. Not even wanting a healthy marriage should should, in replace of wanting to glorify God. We need to glorify God in those things and through those things, but he needs to take precedence. You shouldn't be wanting to have a healthy marriage just so that home life is great. You should want a healthy marriage so that in your marriage it glorifies and points to Jesus. You shouldn't just want well-behaved kids so you don't, you're not that parent that everyone looks at like, what's wrong with you and your kids, right? You should want to disciple your kids in that the way you disciple points to God. Same thing of how you use your finances. Now, it's not bad to to get finances and to be successful, but in those things that that you, when you get it, it should be pointing to glorify God, not yourself. Our greatest desire should be that we glorify God. And how do we do that? Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew is in the New Testament. It is the gospel account of Jesus' life through the lens of Matthew. Now, in this scripture, in Matthew 22, we have some people asking Jesus, hey, what's the greatest command? AKA, what's the thing that we need to listen to? Because there's over 600 something commands and laws, but which one is the most important? Now, we might say, oh, they were just curious. No, they were trying to trip Jesus up. And Jesus responds in Matthew 22, verse 37, you should know this, He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. What Jesus is saying there, the way to put a smile on God's face, the way to get God to rejoice with you is that in your everyday life, in your everyday motive, in your everyday thought, in everything in of who you are, heart, soul, mind, and strength, that everything shows your love for God everything. But the second thing is like it. Verse 39 says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So check this, ready? Perspective. If the first thing that we can do to put a smile on God's face is to love him solely, like everything, worship, obey, then the second most important thing is to love people enough, lost people enough to, for them to do the same like you, aka you put a smile on God's face when you love and worship him and when you win souls for him. Everything should point to glorifying God. There is joy in soul winning, but can I clarify, that joy is not for you. That joy is not just so we can be happy on this earth. That joy is not so that we can just cheer and clap and be excited. That that joy is not for that. If it was, guess what? Then when someone that you know gets saved, we'll probably be excited. When someone else you don't know, if that joy was just for you to happen, you probably won't be as thrilled. See, the joy when it comes to soul winning is his. See, the thought would be that we are so intimate with God that we will respond like how he responds. Last week, we talked about burden, having a burden. And so we want to have a burden of the Lord because God is burdened for lost souls. But at the same time, we need to rejoice when lost souls are won over because God rejoices. Not just because we say, hey, let's stand to our feet and clap. 
But what if we were so intimate with God that when he rejoiced, we rejoice? See, you guys know the scripture where it says, all of heaven rejoice when one sinner comes to repentance, right? We know that? And I always used to think, I was like, man, that's pretty cool. All of heaven is looking down here on this earth, watching someone raise their hand, watching someone stand up, watching someone go back to the starting line. And I'm like, no, that's, that doesn't seem accurate. See, here's how I imagine it when all of heaven rejoice because one sinner repents. I believe that all of heaven is so consumed and so focused and fixated on worshiping God that when one sinner comes to repentance, there's an indicator on God's face that represents someone just got saved. And so they see it on God's face and then they know. Like, I just imagine that that all of heaven is just worshiping God, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And they're looking at him and so focused. And all of a sudden, they see this big smile on his face. And he's like, yeah. And so when they're looking at him, they're like, oh, someone must have got saved. And then all of heaven Rejoice. What if you were so focused and fixated on God and so intimately in love with him, you knew when he rejoiced and you rejoiced because he rejoices? Can you imagine this? Can you imagine being part of the reason that, that God rejoices? Can you imagine putting a smile on his face because you love him and you get others to love him too? There is no greater joy than to lead someone to Jesus. Correction, there is no greater joy than to lead someone to Jesus and then that person leads someone else to Jesus. Why? Because there is joy in song winning. Turn with me to Luke chapter five. Luke is also in the New Testament and is again, uh, the gospel account of Jesus's life through the eyes of Luke, Luke chapter five. Leading up to what we're about to read in Luke 5, this is where Jesus is choosing his disciples. He's picking his disciples, who's going to follow him, who's going to be part of the 12. And he comes across a guy named Levi. Levi, we know in other gospels, is Matthew. And so he talks to Levi, he says this this in verse 27 of chapter 5. After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. Now, let me stop right there. Let me give you a history on tax collectors. If you don't know, maybe you do. Tax collectors weren't liked in their day. Tax collectors weren't people that were like, oh, that's my friend. No, (laughs) tax collectors were just hated. Why? Because they worked for the government, and they would collect what was owed, and then they would charge more so that they can profit off of the tax. For me, it would be like if someone were to call me and say, hey, this is your student loan. I'm going to charge you extra so that I can have that extra. We call them admin fees, but I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. No, but it would be like someone charging way more so that they can keep it for themselves. So no one liked them. But even more so, tax collectors were Jewish people ripping off other Jewish people. And so they were like, man, you're ripping off your own people? Now, we read this scripture, and most people focus on the follow me part. And we're like, yes, God, I will follow you. But I've recently stumbled upon this part of this scripture that has opened my eyes to where I believe God wants to open yours. Let's read it again. It says, 
After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. Pause right there. Where was Levi at? The tax office. He was at his job. He was at his workforce, a.k.a. he wasn't in these seats, in these rows. He wasn't in the balcony. He wasn't in this church. He wasn't in a small group where Jesus went and, and, and ministered to him. He was at his workforce. I know this is so simple, but what you need to understand is that Jesus reaches people where they're at, not just metaphorically. Jesus doesn't, doesn't say, hey, come as you are and, 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 and reaches people metaphorically. He goes to lost people. If there is one thing that I, I hope you understand, it's this. Our end goal should not be to, to invite people to church, but to bring Jesus to people. Our end goal, I'm going to say it again, because I don't I think we need, to, we need to emphasize this. Our end goal should not that we just invite people into this building, into this church, but that we take Jesus to them. We need to take Jesus to a lost world. See, if you don't do that, if, if, if you are just saying, no, I'm going to invite them to church, you cheapen your responsibility. You cheapen your responsibility. It's not enough to get them here. You have to get them to Jesus. It's not enough to get them in the building. You know why? The building won't save them. It's not enough to just get them to listen to, to a communicator up here. Guess what? Yes, one of us will come up on a stage every week and present the gospel and create an opportunity for your friends and family members to get saved. That's awesome. But if I, can I say this really politely? If that is your strategy, you have cheapened the Holy Spirit's role in your life to be bold and to go. That if your strategy is, I'm, I'm just going to invite people to church and not invite them to Jesus, you have lowered the standard of Acts 1-8 of the Holy Spirit empowering you, baptizing you to go to all the ends of the earth to preach the gospel. You lower that standard if your strategy is just to bring them here, just to a 1045 service. See, a few years ago, I got to talk with um, the old Marco's Pizza owner. Anybody know Marco's Pizza? Yeah, Gateway Fellowship is like the number one fan of Marco's. We just eat there all the time. Uh, I swear we're all like Ninja Turtles or something. I don't know. But I, I remember talking to him. He's not the owner now. I remember talking to him a few years ago, and, uh, and I, I started telling him my story, just how Jesus impacted my life, started to witness him, asked him his story, realized he hasn't been in church in a few years, and I, I was just telling him, inviting him into this, this, this relationship to Jesus. You know what he said to me? He said, Chocolate Bear, I've been the owner of Marco's Pizza for four years. I've had church pastors, church staff, church leaders, church members of all denominations come into my store for four years, and not one has ever presented the gospel to me. Let that sink in to everywhere you go today, this week, that there is someone in your midst has probably never heard the gospel because no one has spoken up on behalf of God. Verse 28. 
He said, it says, so he, Levi, left all, rose up, and followed him. I love this. This is a clear depiction of what it means to surrender your life to Jesus. Levi surrendered all. He left all. I don't know if you know the implications of leaving all. He didn't just quit his job and move on. He left his livelihood, but more so, that's how he got his wealth. He got rid of his wealth, too. He got rid of even a reputation. Think through this. He worked for the Roman government, and then he goes, follows Jesus. It's not a job that you can just go, hey, I betrayed you. Can I come back? Can you hire me back? See, I don't want to compare, but the other disciples who were fishermen, they had a chance to go back to the profession. Think about it. Simon, after he denied Jesus, he went back to fishing. This is not something Levi could go back to. He surrendered all, and it's a, it's a depiction of how we need to be in our lives. Our old life should be a surrendering of everything. Not, hey, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, but I'm going to take this with me. It's a surrendering of all. And in verse 29, I love it. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. Not only did he surrender all, but all that he had, he threw a party for Jesus. All the wealth that he, he got over the years, he, he put it on Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was worth it. That's a clear depiction of Jesus being worth it. Here's a question. It's not even on my notes. Is Jesus worthy enough to you that you'd give up everything? He gave all and then continuing the verse. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with him. Levi was maybe a Christian just for a fraction of time. Levi barely just even knew what it meant to follow Jesus. And already he's inviting other lost people to encounter this God that he encountered. Why? Because it was real to him. Jesus was real to him. Here's the reality. A saved person doesn't want to go alone. A saved person doesn't want to get to heaven alone. They want to bring other people with them. If it's real to you, you'll share it. If Jesus is real to you, you'll share it. Here's how I'll explain it. Over the last few weeks, months, we've all been up in arms about the coronavirus, huh? Right? Came to San Antonio. Everybody's wiping their hands on everything they touch. You're like, oh no, coronavirus. Don't get that. Baby, rub some Vicks on your head. You know, I don't know. Don't catch that coronavirus, you know. So here's, here's a thought. Say I caught the coronavirus. Some of y'all are not going to shake my hand after service. I love it. You're like, ew, gross. Uh, what if I caught the coronavirus, but I was smart enough to come up with the coronavirus cure? This is how I know this is an illustration because I'm not that smart, Okay. Would you trust this, by the way? You got coronavirus? Let me spray you, you know. <laughs> Say I, got, I came up with the cure, and I was like, I got the coronavirus. I figured it out. I sprayed it, and I just walked into it. And all of a sudden, coronavirus was cured. I figured out the cure. And I don't have to spray myself again. That was really weird. Uh, <laughs> you're like, cool, good job. Now, what if you got the coronavirus, and you're dying? And you're like, hey, can I get some of that cure that you made? Obviously, it cured you. 
And I said, nah, I'm good. I'm going to hold on to this. This is precious to me. I'm going to hold on to this cue. And you're going to be like, wow, I hate you. <laughs> you know, you would say that and probably move on. What if your kids were dying of coronavirus? Your family members were dying of coronavirus. Your friends were dying of coronavirus. And you knew I had the cure and I knew you had, I had a lot of it. And I said, no, I am not going to give it to you. Think through that. We have a dying world, not just dying as in one day we will be in a grave, but we have people left and right, eternities, going to an eternal damnation away from Jesus. And you have the cure. For us to not share it is to be selfish and watch others suffer. If it's real to you, you'll share it. But here's a question to ask yourself. If you're not sharing it, is it real to you? If you're not sharing Jesus, was Jesus really real to you? Or was this just something you did at church? Verse 30. And their scribes and their Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Understand that when you witness and you share your faith, you're going to have opposition. You're going to have rejection. Hope you know that. Like, you might share your faith and someone seriously might just be like, I, I, I don't want of it. Or they might talk bad to you, what have you. You're going to face that. You know why? You were, be, you were called to be salt of the earth. Now, many times we think of salt of the earth as preserving the earth, right? But how many of you guys ever had a wound or a cut and you walked into the beach water, the salt water? What happens? It's like, ah, it starts stinging. It hurts. You're upset. Like, why? Man, this hurts. Well, if you're called salt of the earth, whenever you go bring this salt to a lost generation, to a lost people who have wounds, it's going to sting them too. And they're going to have opposition. But you can't fear their response. You have to fear and have reverence for the Lord. Here's a question. If you're like, I don't know if that's me. I don't know if I'm fearing man or not. Here's a question to ask. Ready? If I told you that every person that you ever told Jesus about, every person you witnessed to, if I told you all of them, everyone would come into salvation, how many people will you tell as soon as you leave this door? If you're like, man, I tell hundreds if I don't get opposition. That's a litmus test that you're fearing man and not God. And then in Luke chapter 15, Jesus was not just had opposition in, in, in just one part of his life. He had opposition in other parts where he was hanging out with sinners again in Luke 15. And they're like, hey, why are you hanging out with sinners again? In verse 4, he says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. What Jesus is saying here is that burden for the loss leads to pursuit of the loss. Burden for your lost friends leads to pursuit of those lost friends. 
Last week, we, we did something super powerful in the altar moment. We cried out names. We cried out names of family members and friends and people that you know that don't have Jesus. But for us to just cry them out and never do anything about it was just a waste. It's not enough to just have burden in your heart. It's not enough to just feel bad that someone doesn't know him. We need to take action steps. We need to speak up on behalf of Christ. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. We can't just be in this place and have burden. Because Jesus didn't. He was so burdened for our sins that God sent him down. His burden led to action. What is your burden leading you to? What is it? What is it? What's that burden and your heart pumping for, for a lost family member? What is that leading you to? Is it leading you to just say, oh, you know what? I hope someday someone else talks to them. I hope someday they end up in the church and the gospel is pre presented to them. Gosh, if you really truly loved people and you truly love God, you'll do something about it. So because when the lost sheep is found there's rejoicing you see that in verse 5 and when he has found it he lays on his shoulders rejoicing and when he comes home he calls together his friends and his neighbors everybody saying hey rejoice with me for i have found my lost sheep or the sheep which was lost i say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 just persons who need no repentance there is joy when the lost is found but not our joy his joy he is ecstatic in heaven when someone repents of their sins and surrenders it all so the question is for us what are we going to do about it not only should we get his burden and his heart we should look at his joy and, and, and hope to put a smile on God's face. Psalms 1, 26 says this, those who sow in tears shall reap joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bring in his sheaves with him. Don't pray in hopes if it might happening, but move in faith that God will see it through.